pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we are continuing with our Systematic Theology 3 on the Doctrine of the Church, and we're going to do a little bit different here for the next two episodes. We're going to give a brief uh, discussion of the relationship of uh, the church as viewed by the reformers. And so, so far, what we've looked at is we saw the terms, the images that the Bible uses in relation to the church. We saw that the key point about the term ecclesia is that it is neutral, and that's important for you to remember. It's neutral in its meaning. And so we should not make a lot out of the fact that it literally means the called out ones. More importantly, we saw that the normal usage of the term involves you actually being present in a physical part and and physically part of a local church. The idea of being spiritually present when you actually do not assemble with others in Christ is never to be normative. And I I toss that in because you're sick, you're in the hospital, you're not somehow now not part of the church, but you should feel that separation when you're imprisoned especially for your faith again there's that loss of that fellowship and and there should be that natural yearning to be back it it disturbs both of you and i i know a lot that we have people who come up with every reason under the sun not to gather yeah Um, well and it and then there's also those sweet moments sometimes when you visit someone typically an older person like in the nursing home who physically can't be part of the church and they want to be and so you have the opportunity to do like communion with them one-on-one. Have you, you've done that? Yeah. Um, Did, well, didn't I do it with you and Esther Lena? I don't know. I took somebody with me and she was, uh, she had been shut in. And I also did it with, uh, another uh, woman in our church, uh, Peggy. And it was really a sweet time just yeah. to share communion together and, and encourage. But you see there are people who want to be yes. the, and they're, they're providentially prevented from being there just due to age or sickness or whatever. But uh, you do see in the true, true Christian, they're that desire to be with the church. They're not making excuses or justifications. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm spiritually part of the church, so. Well, with all of that in mind though, the idea of what the church actually is has actually changed over the centuries and it creates quite a bit of challenge on this subject. Uh, understand that the Bible did not change. And so the data related to the church is still present. But through the corruption of the church, especially in the Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic Church, um, that it creates challenges for us. So in the time of the Reformation, it was like an earthquake that shuddered through the church, and so much was reconsidered and retaught that it has a significant impact on us. And so we're going to give a rather broad outline of how the Reformation affects us and how we view what the church is. So remember that if the Roman Catholic Church is the true church, then to leave it or to be excommunicated from it was to be outside of salvation itself. For Christ was saving his church, not just individuals. 
And that's important to keep in mind. We can't really can't even begin to understand the incredible power and pressure that this exerted on the people in that day. Imagine being an untaught, simple peasant who from birth knew only your little church where these mystical activities would take place. No other options, no other realities. This was the way of salvation. Few would ever question or challenge it for it meant for, for most death. But with the Reformation, everything was up in the air to be examined and questioned with regard to the Christian faith. And if the Reformers were correct, then the Roman Catholic Church was a false church or an anti-church. And if they were wrong, then they were false. And so as people would come to hear these men preach and expound scripture, the question was natural, what is the church? And so what we'll do today is we're going to focus briefly on Martin Luther and Zwingli, and then next episode we'll deal with Calvin and a bit on the Anabaptists. Okay, so the Reformers and the Church. So first of all, we come to Martin Luther, um, and here's just some of his stuff on the nature of the Church. Uh, he understood that the gospel was the true treasure of the Church and was to be the center of the Church. Uh, the presence, therefore, of the gospel is the mark of the true church. Uh, so he quotes, um, or he, he, he writes this, he says, the sure mark by which the Christian congregation can be recognized is that the pure gospel is preached there. For just as the banner of any army is the sure sign by which one can know that kind of Lord and army have taken to the field, so too the gospel is the sure sign by which one knows where Christ and his army are encamped. Likewise, where the gospel is absent and human teachings rule, there no Christians live, but only pagans, no matter how numerous they are and how holy and upright their life may be. Um, now, this means that an episcopally ordained ministry is not necessary for the presence of the church, nor um, to safeguard it. And to be episcopally ordained meant that you must be an officially recognized priest from the church and of course, in the context, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so if there was no priest, then in their teaching, there was no church. But Luther argued that if there is a genuine preaching of the gospel, then there the church is present. Therefore, no human assembly can rightly call itself the church if the gospel is not present. And so you can imagine, of course, the impact this had on those who had heard it. Um, the church was made up of all those who believed in Christ and so as one man, Timothy George, um, writes, he says, Luther once responded to a question as to what the church was by replying, why a seven-year-old child knows what the church is, namely holy believers and sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. Luther had a way of saying things. Yeah. Like him or not, I, I really enjoyed reading a lot of his works. I, I came to appreciate him. And the Lutheran church does not really reflect Luther as much as it reflects um, Melanchthon and some others who came after him. Um, he, he was a brilliant man. He was a man for his time. Um, I would not have wanted to be him. Um, yeah, he had some backbone yeah. for sure. Well, anyhow, Timothy George expands on this, and he gives three key characteristics of what made up the church in Luther's world. So the first was the priority of the gospel, which we just mentioned that the church had become an end unto itself. The pa papal view of the church was that it was made up of the Pope and the Cardinals. A lot of people don't understand that. Right. Um, God's grace was parceled out to the highest bidder. 
against that corruption, Luther pressed that the gospel is what made up the church. The church does not constitute the word of God, but is constituted by the word. That's radical thinking It's a huge paradigm shift. Um, Therefore, the continuity of the church was not through a succession of bishops and popes, but through a succession of believers. Again, radical. Uh, The second thing is it's made up of, the church is made up of the word and sacrament. So the gospel uh, is the keystone of the church and defined a genuine church. But what did it look like? Well, Luther saw that it was exhibited by the word rightly preached and the sacrament rightly administered. If these are present, then the church is present. These are the indispensable means of grace given to the church. This would involve then the actual preaching of the word, not merely the presence of the word or the writing of the word. Preaching was seen by Luther as a key, as key and central. Therefore, it was through Luther that the pulpit, not the altar, then became the focus of the church. I, I think some people don't understand, again, how radical a Protestant church is because the altar is shoved away and the pulpit is brought front and center because that, yeah. that was part of what made a church. Well, and you see some of those, the vestiges of that in some of those old mainline denominations, yeah. like the UCC church we're looking at. Yeah. They have two little mini pulpits off yeah. to the side where a homily and a reading or something takes place. But that's because at the very center is where you come and you receive those sacraments. Yes, exactly. So this led to the office of preacher. And with it came much advice from Luther about avoiding the temptations of that office. Uh, They must always be aware of those who will tickle their pride. Um, By the way, these are still true today. They are to only preach the word of God and seek only the praise of God, not man. And his advice to aspiring preachers is summed up by him saying, he stands up, speaks up, and knows when to shut up. (laughs) You got to like the guy. Um, Sacraments, in his mind, were not merely effective in themselves. I can't ever pronounce this. You read this. Yeah, uh, the Latin phrase, ex opera operata. Yeah, Luther rejected it. From the doing of the doing of it is literally what it means. All you need is a priest. It has to be a priest, though. And he needs to actually do the mechanical ritual of the sacrament, and that's all that makes that. That's all. He could be drunk. He could be an unbeliever, but it's actually you're flipping the dials. That's all. And the switches. And and he's like, no. Well, and the the point there is that you don't need faith. Right. Um, Faith is not what you know, brings in that sanctifying work. Right. It's just get the bread in you, get the wine in you, and then somehow that just creates Something sanctification. Happens. Right. Yeah. And so into his, that point, these per, must be personally received by faith and the sacraments were a word from the Lord and to re, be received as such. Yeah. By the way, just on that point about the word of God being central, because, you know, then of course in Protestant denominations, they bring the pulpit to the center of the, Right. Sanctuary. And I think you pointed out, it must have been, I think it was you in a previous episode, how it's a little bit irritating today on how some of these preachers, they've essentially removed the pulpit and they put like basically a little music stand up there and maybe put it on the side when there's symbolism in the pulpit being there because it creates a separation between the preacher and the people, not because the preacher himself is some priest or some higher class of Christian but because there ought to be a separation between 
the word of God and the people. There's right. something holy happening there. Right. And almost the bigger the pulpit, the better, symbolically yeah. speaking. Yeah, yeah. And while the pastor is behind that pulpit, he should be bringing the word and and he's in a different state in a sense. When he step, when he's done, he steps back around. He's just another member of that church. But during that time, he's doing a holy work yeah. of bringing the word of God to the people. And I don't think it's that shocking to me that now that we've replaced it with the music stand off to the side or nothing at all but a little stool, and the guy is more concerned about his skinny jeans or whatever it is he's wearing. And, and how he connects with yeah, the people. And, and, but you also realize that in so many of those churches, the word becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. Uh, I walk in a church, if I don't see a pulpit, I'm already in a bad mood. Yeah. Um, and I'm almost never disappointed uh, with what I see. Sure. Uh, another point that Luther also brings up is this concept on the priesthood of all believers. This is a very misunderstood part of his theology. Uh, many see it as refreshing uh, or referring to the idea that there, there are no clergy. Um, others very common today see it as the fact that every believer is his or her own priest and therefore has the right now to a private judgment on issues of faith and practice. That is a great error. Um, very common. The essence of his teaching was that every person was another person's priest, and so we are all priests, but to one another. That's the idea. Um, now, he writes here in Freedom of the Christian Man, uh, that is Luther, he says, not only are we the freest of kings, we are also priests forever, which is far more excellent than being kings. For as priests, we are worthy to appear before God, to pray for others, and to teach one another divine things. Christ has made it possible for us, provided we believe in him, to be not only his brethren, co-heirs, and fellow kings, but also his fellow priests. Therefore, we may boldly come into the presence of God in the spirit of faith and cry, Abba, Father, pray for one another and do all things which we see done and foreshadowed in the outer invisible works of priests. It's a good quote. Yeah. Um, now, this eliminated that strong distinction between the clergy and the laity in the Roman Catholic Church, and the whole church now possessed the right to baptize, preach the word of God, celebrate communion, pray for others, so on and so forth. I don't know why the Catholic Church hated him. <laughs> I mean, he just is laying an ax to everything. Yeah, yep. Um, this, this meant also that no one could be a Christian all by himself. That's the other payoff of his uh, theology here. Just as we cannot baptize ourselves, neither can we serve God alone. And so uh, here's another quote. Uh, the fact that we all are priests and kings means that each of us Christians may go before God and intercede for the other, asking God to give him his own faith. Thus, if I notice that you are or that you have no faith or a weak faith, I can ask God to give you a strong faith. I do not ask that God would give you my faith or my works, but that he would give you your own faith and your own works so that Christ may be able to give you all of his works and salvation through your faith, just as he has given them to us through our faith. All right, so that's the priesthood of the believers. He also uh, saw that there was a genuine need for the institutional church. This is how Luther kept himself distinct from the more radical reformers who rejected the external nature of the visible church. Uh, there was no sense of the individualism that characterized much of the radical reformation, much less the thoughts of those in the American church today. 
The visible church is divinely ordained to be the vehicle or means of grace. So he writes, uh, we on our part confess that there is much that is Christian and good under the papacy. Let me say it again. We on our part confess that there is much that is Christian and good under the papacy. Indeed, everything that is Christian and is good is to be found there and has come to us from this source. For instance, we confess that in the papal church or papal church, there are the true holy scriptures, true baptism, the true sacrament of the altar, the true keys to the forgiveness of sin, the true office of the ministry, the true catechism in the form of the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the articles of the creed. Now, this then ultimately came to create difficulties for many as the Reformation progressed, as the differences between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers became more pronounced. And and people forget that Luther was the first really to make that true break. And he never fully, he really was trying to reform the Catholic Church. Yeah, he wasn't trying to dispense with it. Yeah, he, he saw it as a good thing that got corrupted. He was trying to fix that. And a lot of people just don't read them keeping some of those historical realities in mind and they go astray. So that's that's Luther. Yeah, well that brings us then to a man by the name of Aldrich Zwingli. Um, and it's spelled Z-W-I-N-G-L-I, but pronounced Zwingli. Zwingli. Yeah. Uh, now he is not recognized as he ought to be by believers today and Protestants in particular, he was he was doing in Switzerland. In fact, what Luther was doing in Germany, and an interesting guy he is. That that well, I, I came to appreciate him um, and also dislike him <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I was uh, doing a seminary course on the theology of reformers. I actually wrote a whole syllabus on on the reformers, and and I really realized I don't I did not know him like I ought, and there were things about him that I'm like he's really praiseworthy here. And then he turned around and start drowning people who argued for believer baptism. And I'm like, not so much there though. <laughs> yeah. Well, so he was a man who started well in his reforming, but then let those politics yeah. move him in his, his positions more than they should have. But for Zwingli, the church is defined in relation to Christ. He argues for communion of the saints rather than an external organization. So, Two, two basic meanings to the term church. First, it refers to the whole communion of saints who truly believe in Christ, and this would include specific parishes and congregations. But second, it refers to congregations of professing believers in a particular place. Um, in a reply to Emser, is that how you would yeah. um, pronounce it? You never know. They're I Swiss. Know. I mean, that could be Smith for all I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, it's, a, it's yeah. Um, he, in this writing, he acknowledges that churches are a mix of true and false believers, uh, but he makes it clear that they are not truly in the church. Right. Uh, so as Zwingli then would begin to battle the Anabaptists, he began to emphasize aspects of the church that he normally would not have had to do. Uh, for the Anabaptists, the church is made up of only believers, and therefore only those who can show this faith should belong. Accordingly, only believers can participate in baptism and communion. Zwingli used both the New Testament and Old Testament passages to argue that it was made up of both believer and unbeliever. So he, he argued that the church was 
uh, Israel and, and whatnot. Out of that debate, the idea of the covenant began to develop in Zwingli's writings. Uh, there was a connection in his mind between baptism and circumcision that had to do with being part of the covenant people. So you can see the ever so beginning seeds of covenantal theology right there. Um, so Dr. Stefan clarifies this by pointing out controversy with Anabaptists led Zwingli to stress the confession of Christ as a feature of the visible church. We cannot tell whether those who confess Christ are in fact believers any more than apostles could of Judas, though Christ knows. Those who confess Christ are, however, baptized and become members of the church on the other side where on the other side, where there is no confession of Christ, there is no church. To that extent, confession of Christ is a mark of the church. And this, this is something, that, uh, before we close this out, that's worth understanding, that the controversies that were pushing a man like Luther or Zwingli actually helped frame their theology, for good or for bad, and it's still the same way today. I mean, right now, the battle over how you should vote, right? I mean, it's election day today that we're taping. And there's Christians who say, I can't vote for Trump. And other Christians saying, I can't vote for Biden. And it's actually creating up a whole push. And a theology is actually getting developed. And it's going to be either good or bad or a mix simply because of the controversies of the day. And right. again, people read theology, old theology, and they fail to understand the historical pressures that are framing those words. Yeah. And, and it's so important that you keep that in mind and remember that, that ultimately the, the only thing that can truly reform you is going to be the word of God. So you always go back to that. That's why, I, again, I get so annoyed when I have a brother or sister in Christ who argues that, well, this is what the Westminster Confession says. I'm like, I don't care. It, it's yeah, like, one level, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's fine. That, you want to start there, but then let's go to the text. Well, that, I mean, we talk often about how theology is always, I mean, it's not written in a vacuum, right? Right. Um, and it's usually forged um, in reaction to something. Yes. So theology is very reactional. That's yes. And then you got to take the Word of God and push that theology through it, filter it through the Word of God to see what yeah. stands and what falls. Yeah. So two key reformers. Two major influences on how the Western church understands itself in the world of Protestantism. Sadly, we are usually unaware of those influences today with the dumbing down of the pulpit, but they exist nonetheless. Now, next episode, we hope to learn about how Calvin understood the church, and we hope it will be helpful to you. And we'll also look at the Anabaptists. But until then, make certain to tune in, join the conversation. And again, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review, connect with us on the various uh, social media, and tell a friend. <laughs>